I want to thank you for listening today. If you have not subscribed to our podcast, please do so and feel free to rate and review us as well. If you live nearby and do not have a church home, we would love for you to come visit us here at Fellowship Bible Church in Jacksonville, Texas. You can connect with us by calling or texting CONNECT to 903-586-6520. If you would like to support the ministry here at Fellowship Bible Church, we would greatly appreciate that as well. To give one time or on a regular basis, you can text GIVE to 903 903- 586-6520. If you live a ways away, we hope you would find a good Bible-believing and preaching church in your area to join and serve in and support. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you have a great week. Well, while Scripture is filled with stories of individuals who finished strong in their race, they ran for the Lord. There are also stories of those who had a promising start, but failed to finish well. You may know of stories like this as well, personally. That is Gideon's story. If you have your Bibles, turn to Judges chapter 8. For the past two weeks, we have been studying Gideon's story. We have looked at his calling in Judges 6. His rise in Judges 7, and today we will look at his fall in Judges 8 and the lessons we learn from that. There are lessons to be learned from failure in Scripture as well as success. We need to learn all of those lessons. In Judges 6, we learn after 40 years of rest, God's people, Israel, again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gives them into the hand of Midian, for seven years. The Midianites are terrible enemies of God's people. They consume their resources, leaving God's people homeless, hungry, and humiliated. The, Israel, the Israelites, they, they cry out to God, but it's not a cry of a true sorrow over their sin. They are upset by the consequences of sin, So instead of God sending them a savior this time, he sends them a preacher. He sends them a prophet to remind them of their sin and their their need of God and God's saving work and how they have rebelled against him. Then he rises up, raises up Gideon to save them. We have learned that Gideon is an unlikely judge from the weakest clan from the tribe of Manasseh and he is the least in his father's house. Gideon did not have authority in the home with his clan, in his tribe, or amongst his people, yet God calls him and assures him he will be with him and will use him to strike the Midianites. But God does it in a unique way, in such a way to make it clear that he is the one responsible for saving his people. He takes Gideon's army from 32,000 to 10,000, all the way down to 300. God wanted his people Israel to see that it was by his power alone that they would be rescued. And believers, God wants us to understand that as well, right? That he is the one who has saved us. It is his work in our hearts and lives. 
after graciously giving Gideon a promise of victory over his enemies, he leads Gideon to victory. These 300 soldiers go into this Midianite camp in the middle of the night armed with trumpets to blow and jars to break. When they do, the Lord sets the Midianite army against each other and they turn their swords against one another. And after many died, the remaining army fled only to be struck down by the men of Israel from Naphtali to Asher, from all uh, Manasseh throughout Ephraim. While Gideon first, he gives, he gives credit to God for this, the credit that is due him, we're told, after receiving a promise of victory, we see Gideon's best moment. He believes in God. That's why his name's in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. He believes in that promise of victory and we're told he worshipped the Lord. But over time, we're going to see, he sets himself up in such a position to receive credit as well. He begins to act as if he is above God's law, and if he is the one ruling Israel and the one responsible for their prosperity and peace they're experiencing in the land of promise. And today, we're going to finish this sad chapter, the final chapter in Gideon's story, and we're going to learn of the dangers of success. This is a great word for us this morning, right? Judges chapter 8. What is the worst thing that can happen to a man driven to succeed financially? Most in our world would answer career failure, right? But, but let me ask this another way for us believers in here. What is the worst thing that can happen to a man spiritually who is driven by career success? I would say the answer would be career success. By Judges chapter 8, Gideon has experienced a lot of success and he has lost sight of his lowliness and his great need for God. The success and esteem he has experienced from being used by God to redeem Israel has gone to his head and as a result he has forgotten that it is God's work in and through him that brought his people victory over the Midianites. In Judges 8, Gideon experiences several challenges and temptations as a leader. We will see how he fails at each and the lessons we learn from this. First, I want you to see Gideon fails to properly deal with the critics in his life. That's point number one. Look at verse one. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us? when you went to fight against Midian, and they accused him fiercely. Oftentimes, after success in ministry and in life, come challenges and criticism. Have you experienced that? We're told in verse 1, then after the victory over Midian, the men of Ephraim criticize Gideon. They say, what is this you have done? Now, Gideon could have responded very snarky and said, what do you mean, defeat the Midianites and send them running for the hills? I thought he had done a huge service for God's people. God had done a huge service for them through Gideon. Yet the men of Ephraim want to criticize. There will always be critics, won't there? It doesn't matter if things are great 
or if things are bad. God's people have been saved from their most fierce enemies and the men of Ephraim are upset that Gideon decided to not call them to fight alongside them. Gideon had critics. So will you. You have to learn to deal with the critics in your life or you will struggle spiritually. A prayer request I receive a lot from people is this, Graham, pray for me. I, I don't know what I've done, but I have this family member. I've got this, this person at school, this person at work, this neighbor who just criticizes my every move. I can't take it. To grow in godliness, to become more of who God has called you to be in Jesus, you're going to have to learn to deal with the critics in your life. Gideon had good reason for not calling upon Ephraim. This tribe was one of the most powerful in Israel. They were wealthy economically. They were strong militarily. And Gideon was from one of the weakest tribes in Manasseh. They probably would not have done well following Gideon's command. You know how I know this? Because they're criticizing him in victory. He's clearly God's appointed judge for his people. And while others want to make him king, more on that in a moment, the men of Ephraim criticize his every move. It has been said that those who succeed and rise in prominence, they lose friends and they gain either fans or foes. That's Gideon's story here. He gets a bit of both. Both cause issues. It was wise for Gideon not to call upon Ephraim because they wanted to share in the glory of victory. God warned Gideon that some would boast in their own strength and glorify themselves in victory. God sends those types of people away. It's good that the men of Ephraim have been excluded here. Yet here they still come to criticize Gideon. There are some positive and negative ways to deal with critics in your life. Billy Graham used to say he turns his critics into coaches. I have learned that lesson over the years. That's a very practical, helpful lesson. Oftentimes there are valuable lessons to learn from criticism, even if those providing the criticism don't have the best of intentions. There are lessons that I've learned in ministry, things that I've implemented from criticism being given and, and not from a good place. But I'm like, you know what? What they've said is kind of helpful. I think I'm going to put that in play. You know, God can use that. There's grace in, in the midst of that, okay? I've heard another pastor say, he said this recently, he said the best way to deal with critics is outlove them and outlast them. Those are some positives. Negatives include responding maliciously to them out of pride. Another is by showing them preferential treatment because of who they are, who they know, and what they have. Gideon does both here. Look at what he says in verse 2. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abizar? So Gideon responds humbly to the men of Ephraim. He acknowledges the fact that they have more money than he does, a better economy, more influence. And then he says, verse 3, God has given into your hands the princes of Midian or Ibn Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Now he's, 
He's not being truthful here. They've been delivered into their hands. Remember Gideon in the 300, they infiltrated a camp of Midianites. But he's, he's stroking their ego here, right? God has delivered the most mighty in Midian, Oreb and Zeb to you. What have I done in, in, in comparison to you? It pales in comparison, right? Stroking their ego here, and it has the desired effect. We're told at the end of verse 3, Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. So Gideon deals with Ephraim by speaking in a way that is self-deprecating and humble because of who they are and what they have. But he deals with another group of people in a completely different way. Let's keep reading, verse 4. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. Now stop there for just a minute. You need to know that temptations will always be more difficult for you when you're overcome with exhaustion. You know that? There's a great acronym that I learned here recently called HALT. Stands for hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. Whenever you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, you're going to be more susceptible to temptation. We see that scripturally. Think about Moses and the striking of the rock. What was he? He was angry, right? What about Esau and the selling of his birthright? What was he? He was hungry. Gideon and his men are exhausted, verse 5. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? Now, Let's be honest, that's an incredibly snarky and unloving comment from a group of people who should have been providing support for the army of their, their brothers pursuing their enemies. They're basically saying, what have you done yet to deserve our help? You don't have anybody in your hand yet. Gideon's response to them is much different than his response to the men of Ephraim. He's tired, he's hungry, he's angry, and these men are not the caliber of men in Ephraim. So Gideon lets them have it. Look at verse 7. So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. He said, I'm going to get a thorn bush and I'm going to beat you with it. That's what he says. Now they should have helped him. But Gideon here, out of pride, because he feels as if he has earned the respect and the admiration of this lesser group, the honor that he deserves for his conquests, he feels disrespected and slighted, so he's going to show them who he is. And he does. We'll read about that in just a minute. Look at verse 8. And from there he went to Penuel, also pronounced Peniel in some of your translations and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. And guess what? That's exactly what he does. Look at verse 10. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, 
all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Jogbehah and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Ziba and Zalmunna fled. And he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna. And he threw all the army into a panic. Verse 13. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, after he had successfully hunted down Ziba and Zalmunna, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herez, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and the elders of Succoth. He's going to do what he says. Seventy-seven men. And he came, verse 15, and he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. That's a nice way of saying he took thorns and beat them with it. Verse 17, and he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Wow. So we see Gideon respond in a completely different way here, right? But both negative to his critics. To the men of Succoth and Penuel, he responds maliciously out of pride. Look at what Daniel Block says about it in his commentary on Judges. Look at this quote. Gideon's behavior could be justified if Penuel were a Canaanite city, but these were fellow Israelites. His character has been transformed again. He acted like a general out of control, no longer bound by rules of civility, let alone national loyalty. According to Timothy Keller, next quote, Gideon himself has forgotten the lesson of the 300. He feels that he ought to receive admiration and honor for what he has done, Gideon's anger at the people of Succoth and Peniel shows that he expects to be given glory for his achievements, which he is forgetting were in fact God's. How do you respond to your critics? Jesus gave us a great word on this during his earthly ministry. He also exampled this for us. He said in Luke 6, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Praise for, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Verse 35 of Luke 6. Love your enemies and do good. Verse 36. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. While Jesus expects his disciples to, to love those who love them and do good to those who do good to them and lend to those who give back. He tells his disciples the kind of love that you are to show goes way, way, way beyond that. My disciples are to even love their enemies. Jesus is calling for something extreme here. He is calling for us to deal with those who are unloving and, and unkind toward us, who seek our harm in a gracious and loving way. The word love here is the Greek word 
Agape, surprise, surprise. It's the love of the will. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling, but a choosing love. It's not a love that says, I will love you if I feel like it or if you do this for me, but I will love you even if you do not. We have wonderful examples of this in Scripture. Stephen comes to mind for me. Love his story. Love Stephen in Acts. He lovingly preached the truth of God's gospel message and he suffered the consequences for it. They stoned him and killed him. And as the lights were going out on Stephen in this life, he did not hate them, he did not curse them, but he prayed for them. He brought them before God's throne of grace. And we learn that God answered Stephen's prayer. He, he prayed for the salvation of his persecutors. And we learn in Acts 9 that God answered Stephen's prayer with the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. I believe the Apostle Paul was the answer to Stephen's prayer. Jesus responded in that way earlier. Same way, while being crucified in our place, Jesus thought not of himself but others. He prayed for his persecutors, and God answered his prayer as well with the conversion of a thief on the cross and a Roman centurion. Radical, right? This is radical. Not based on who a person is or what they have. This is unconditional. This is unmerited. This is undeserved love. Jesus told his disciples that people would see the truth of his gospel message by the way in which they loved. That's what his gospel teaches us, right? We don't deserve it. We didn't work for it. We deserve judgment in hell. Yet God Loved us while we were still sinners, sent Christ to die for us. Rescued us from sin and death. Changed us from the inside out. Amen? We see what matters most to Gideon and how he viewed himself and who he chooses to pardon and who he chooses to punish. It should look different for followers of Jesus Christ. Now, how on earth can we do this? How can we possibly love in this way? Jesus answered this for us as well. We cannot apart from the grace of God. We need the inward work of the Spirit to love and live in this way. Ligon Duncan said this. Look at this quote. I love this quote. I've shared it with you before. The way that you are able to love the unloving is not because you hope they will change and one day will be able to be loving back to you and give back to you what you've given to them but because God in Jesus Christ, through the gospel, has already given you a gift of grace that you did not deserve, that is enough to fill your soul with joy and gratitude so that you're able to love those who will not give back to you. That's our motivation right there. Folks, God has loved us while we were his enemies. He has shown us mercy, extended grace to us by sending his son to accomplish our salvation and by saving us. Therefore, we are called to do likewise. We are called to be kind to the ungrateful and evil, loving to the unlovable, merciful to the, to the guilty, and gracious to the undeserving. Gideon failed to remember the grace of God in his own life and in his dealings with others. He and his family deserve death and judgment. 
They did from the get-go, from the jump, for forsaking God and serving idols. Remember, Gideon had to tear down his family idols before he went out to serve. He deserved judgment. God responded by saving them by His grace. A rebellious people, idolatrous, unfaithful. Yet He failed to extend grace to others. That's tragic. May we as disciples of Jesus Christ respond differently. Gideon fails to properly deal with the critics in his life. Get this, point number two, he also fails to properly respond to the credit he received. Gideon fails to properly deal with the credit he received. Not only do we have to deal with critics, we have to deal with credit when it is given. Look at verse 18. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so, they, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. They're like, we, we didn't do anything, right? They're, they're denying blame. What do you expect from a pagan people? And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and, and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments, mark that, don't forget that, that were on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. So Gideon pursues and captures these leaders of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he avenges the death of his fellow Israelites by killing them by the sword. He calls upon his oldest son to put him to death, but he was fearful being so young. So Gideon kills them. Great Father's Day message right there. Right, He had to do the work of killing his enemies instead of having his son do it. All right, there you go for those of y'all that wanted a Father's Day message. All right, uh, does not apply today in that way, all right? Uh, the men of Israel respond by praising Gideon and by calling for him to, to rule over them. They, they want Gideon to establish a family dynasty. They say, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. How will Gideon respond to this? Let's look. Verse 23. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Great response, right? The right response. But here's the issue with this response. While Gideon was correct theologically, his actions did not match his confession. How many of us have this problem? Talk a good game. What you say is theologically correct, but your actions don't match what you say. You say the right thing, but with the wrong heart. That's Gideon's problem. You know what would be really freeing for you in your spiritual life is if you would learn to give the real answer instead of the right answer. 
with me? If you're truly honest with where you are and how you're feeling, rather than just worrying about saying the correct thing, how you should be feeling theologically, I'm blessed and highly favored, brother. But really on the inside, you're a mess. If you really mean that, say it. But we need to be real, don't we? For, for us to move from where we are in the direction we're to be heading spiritually. Gideon never learned that lesson. They try and make Gideon king. And he says very piously and humbly, Oh, I shall not rule over you. My son shall not rule over you. The Lord rule over you. I see this sometimes in ministry. You compliment someone and they'll say, Oh, not me, brother, not me. Praise the Lord. But then they'll take great offense at any sort of criticism. And minister in such a way to be seen and in such a way to receive the credit. That's the right answer, not the real answer. Gideon is there. Here. Look at verse 24. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings, because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the gold, golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Oprah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Verse 28, So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. We have a first here in Judges. It won't be a last, but it's the first for us here. First time here we're told of God's people going astray shortly after their deliverance and the first time we have a judge leading them into sin. That won't be the last. What does Gideon do wrong here? Well, first notice he requests a financial reward for their deliverance and as a result he becomes a very wealthy man. It's interesting that in their wanting to make Gideon the king, Gideon does not correct them saying, I will not be king over you because I'm not the one who delivered you. He doesn't say that. He just says the Lord will rule over you. And then he goes on from there to serve as a type of king. They bring him the equivalent of 43 pounds of gold. That indeed is treasure fit for a king. Daniel Block explains it in his commentary in this way. Look at it up on the screen. Gideon retained the king's symbols of royalty. The crescent amulets worn by the camels, the pendants, the purple robes formerly worn by the Midianite kings, and the neckbands worn by the camels. He also had a desire to make his place the place of worship, the place where, where God's presence dwelt in a unique way, the place of divine favor. 
He makes an ephod of this gold and, and garments and places them in his city. An ephod was worn by the high priest, right? In the tabernacle, when entering into the most holy place on behalf of God's people once a year. Timothy Keller, again, tells us this of Gideon's actions. Look at this quote. In making his own copy, Gideon essentially sets up his hometown as a rival place of worship. He wants to encourage people to come to him for guidance, to see his hometown as a place where God can be found. Gideon has used God to consolidate his own positions instead of using his position to serve and be used by God. Big difference. Big, big difference. So while Gideon said, I will not rule over you, but the Lord will rule over you, his actions say, actually, I'm going to rule over you. He chose to do worship his way instead of the Lord's way, and he leads his people into sin as a result. This ephod became a snare to Gideon and his family, and we're told all of Israel whored after it. More on the sin of Israel in just a moment. We're almost finished. Look at verse 29. Jerubbaal, remember that's Gideon's nickname. It's interesting he's referring to him as that now. Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. So he had a harem like a king. Once again, Father's Day message here, okay? Don't be like Gideon, dads, right? That's, there's your Father's Day message. For the rest of Gideon's days, he took what he wanted, lived how he wanted. Why? Because he viewed himself as the great Jerubbaal, that nickname that means Baal crusher. He's the great Baal crusher, the great deliverer of God's people. He had many sons from many wives and concubines. One of them was named Abimelech. Do you know what Abimelech, you know what that name means? My dad is king. That's what that name means. He named his son, my dad is king. No, the Lord rule over you, right? But don't forget, his dad's king, right? You see that? When success comes your way, you're going to have less friends. You're going to have more fans and foes. How do you deal with the fans in your life? How do you deal with people impressed with you and who you are? Scripture speaks of how we are to deal with this from beginning to end. It's with humility. We are to remain humble. How do we do that? By remembering who we are as God's created beings and who we were before God redeemed us and who we are now because God has redeemed us. Listen, creation and the cross are the two reasons we should remain humble. Let me say that again. Creation and the cross are the two reasons why we should always remain humble. We should think on these things regularly, fill our minds with these things as we study God's Word. Allow these things to shape the way we, we view our, ourselves. You have no reason to be proud and every reason to give glory to God for who you are and what you have and where you are spiritually. 
God has created you. In, in Him you have life and breath and everything. In Him you live and move and have your being. You have been uniquely gifted because God is the one who has gifted you. You deserve judgment and hell for your sin. But God, because He is a good and gracious and merciful and loving God, He has saved us in that while we were still sinners, He sent Christ to die for us. And that is not a work that we have done. God chose us. He changed us. He redeemed us. We got nothing to be proud of. Absolutely nothing. We got every reason to bring glory to Him. Creation and the cross, keep those things in mind as you live your lives. Your primary identity is a finite, limited creature, a sinner saved by grace. There it is. Those two truths will keep you humble, and it's healthy for you to view yourself in this way. In verses 32 through 35, we have Gideon's end and the Israelites continued struggle with idolatry and rebellion against God. Look at verse 32. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Oprah of the Abyssalites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal-bereth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of their enemies on every side, they need another prophet, don't they? And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. So Gideon did not finish well, neither did God's people in Gideon's story. They turned again, they whored after the Baals, they made Baal bereth their God. That name literally means Baal of the covenant. Their covenant relationship shifted once again from God to this Canaanite storm God. They did not remain faithful to God. They did not remain faithful to Gideon's family. We're told they did not show steadfast love to the family of Gideon in return for what he had done for them. They forgot God. They forgot his broken Savior. Praise be to God. He did not forget them. Praise be to God, He does not forget us. God made a promise. and He remained true to that promise. He promised He would reconcile us to Himself by a Redeemer. And in the fullness of time, He sent that Redeemer to us, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, unlike Gideon, was a perfect Savior. He had a glorious beginning and end in His earthly ministry. Of course, He's eternal. He's eternally God there was a time when he took on flesh, dwelt among us. Angels broke the darkness with that heavenly birth announcement. And he went out in a glorious way as well. He came from heaven to earth. He became one of us. He lived the perfect life for us. And he died and rose again in order to save us. Have you responded today to God's perfect Savior? Have you turned from your sin? Have you bowed before God's forever King, his wonderful Savior, have you surrendered to Christ as your Lord and Savior today? If not, that's your invitation. I pray you would today. Turn from your sin, place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and be saved today. Let's pray together.